Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and in particular, for these number of weeks through the Ten Commandments and coming this evening to the Fourth Commandment, which is in some ways the most difficult of all the Ten Commandments, if not to keep, then certainly to understand with the appropriate nuance moving from the Old Testament to the New, and how do we understand this commandment and keep it in this new covenant day? Let me pray for us before we read God's word. Father in heaven, we give thanks for all you have done and continue to do for us, and now we ask that you speak through your word, still our hearts, calm our minds, our spirits, that we may listen and receive and rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. One of the nice things about moving to the south is instead of having two or three Chick-fil-A's in your entire state, we had come to Michigan right before we left, you have two or three Chick-fil-A's in every corner. We have them all over the place, and we very much appreciate that. In preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think of a Tim Hawkins. He's a Christian comedian. Yes, there are such things who are Christian and both funny. And he has a song, which some of you will have seen online before, about Chick-fil-A. And I won't sing it, but you can just imagine it's to the tune of the Beatles song yesterday. It goes like this, Chick-fil-A, I could eat there seven times a day, where the people laugh and children play, oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A. Suddenly, I need waffle fries in front of me with some nuggets and a large sweet tea, oh, Chick-fil-A, you set me free. Kids, get in the van so we can go there today, but... Their stores are closed. Oh, I know, because it's Sunday. And then he mutters, Chick-fil-A, what a dirty, rotten trick to play. Now I have to settle for Subway. Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A. I think this song not only captures how many Christians feel about Chick-fil-A, no one has paid me to give this 60-second commercial here. Hal Queen can thank me later, but... It also describes how many Christians feel about resting on Sunday. We think, on the one hand, good for Chick-fil-A, and then on the other, oh, that's kind of annoying. So how are we to understand this fourth commandment? Every one of the Ten Commandments is still binding, and everyone has been transformed by the coming of Christ. This one, more strikingly than the other nine, you will sometimes hear Christians say, well, 
we don't really have the Ten Commandments for us, but what we have is in the New Testament, nine of the commandments are recommitted to us, all of them except for this one, and so we keep nine of the Ten Commandments. And that sort of idea is getting at something important. There is an element of discontinuity, which we'll get to in a moment, but we don't want to say with all that we've learned about the Ten Commandments and how important they were in the life of Israel, and again, for Jesus and the apostles and the life of the church, it won't do to just say, well, we just wait for the commandments to be re-upped in the New Testament. So how do we keep the fourth commandment? Because it says you shall keep the seventh day holy, and here we are gathering, even if we try to keep this day holy, it isn't the seventh day. So what does it mean that this commandment has been transformed by the coming of Christ? Even in the Reformed tradition, Christians don't always agree on how we are to keep and observe the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. For example, here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. God hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. And it's a day where we are to set aside all worldly employments and recreations. And almost every minister who has to state an exception before the presbytery states at least that exception about recreations on the Sabbath. Does this mean that it's wrong to play, you know, shoot hoops in the front yard for a few minutes with my kids or to go on a run or to ride a bike around the park? And the Presbyteries everywhere that I know of accepts that exception and wonders if perhaps it's even semantic more than anything else. So there's the Westminster Confession. This day is a Christian Sabbath. Here's the Heidelberg Catechism, a little different language. What is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? First, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I like that phrase, a festive day of rest, I regularly attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. Many of the same principles, but a little different flavor. The Heidelberg Catechism doesn't call this the Christian Sabbath, calls it a festive day of rest. And here's the second Helvetic Confession from 1566, less familiar to most of us, but during that second generation of the Reformation was one of the most important creedal documents. It says, we see that in the ancient churches there were not only certain set hours in the week appointed for meetings, but that also even for the Lord's Day itself, ever since the Apostles' time, was consecrated to religious exercises and unto a holy rest, which also is now very well observed of our churches for the worship of God and increase of charity. Yet, herein we give no place unto the Jewish observation of the day or to any superstitions. For we do not account one day to be holier than another, nor think that the mere rest is of itself liked of God. Besides, we do celebrate and keep the Lord's day and not the Sabbath, and that with a free observation. Well, that sounds a little bit different. That's the second Helvetic confession. All of these would have 
be very well-respected confessions and creeds within the Reformed tradition. So you have the Westminster Confession a century later referring to the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath, whereas the Second Helvetic Confession says we do keep the Lord's Day, but it's not the Sabbath, and we don't want any superstitious observance of days. That's to just scramble things up as we try to now put them back together. The fourth commandment is unique, and it can be confusing. But you could argue that the Israelites would have understood the fourth commandment to be the most important of the Ten Commandments. One, it's the longest. Two, Sabbath observance is mentioned more often in the Torah than any of the other Ten Commandments. Eleven times in the Torah and over 100 times in the Old Testament. Three, it's the only one that the Lord clearly gives to the Israelites before they reach Sinai. Already gave it to them in chapter 16. And fourth, the Sabbath is the only other day besides the Day of Atonement in the life of Israel where all work was strictly prohibited. So you could make a case that this fourth commandment was seen in ancient Israel as the most important commandment. So even if we conclude, as we'll look at in a moment, that there are significant points of discontinuity between the Jewish Sabbath in the Old Testament and the Lord's Day in the New Testament, we certainly don't want to say, well, the fourth commandment God isn't interested in anymore. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then try to understand what are the points of continuity and discontinuity with this commandment, and then finish with three ways in which we can and should keep the fourth commandment. So you want to have your Bibles open as we look at a few passages in the Old Testament. The first is in Genesis chapter 2. The command or the example of the Sabbath did not begin with Moses but began at creation. Chapter 2, Genesis, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in his creation. You ever think about where where do we get weeks from? Why do we have a week? We have a day. Well, that makes sense. That's tied to the earth's rotation. A month is more or less tied to the lunar cycle, what's going on with the moon. A year is because of the earth's revolution around the sun. But there is no cosmological reason why we should have a week. Why not just have a month and call it good? But we have weeks. Have you ever thought, where, where do we have this repeating every seven days? It's because God made the week, and ultimately our church calendar, though we celebrate Easter and Good Friday and Christmas and have different high points, really the, the church calendar that God means for us to celebrate is this weekly calendar, one day in seven. God rested. Everybody out there in the world has a, has a week. May not even realize where it comes from. It comes from God. God rested, not because he was exhausted, but it's a way of saying it's finished. The world is at rest. I can be at rest. The way things are are the way they are supposed to be. It starts at creation. That's why, if you notice the language in Exodus 20, it says, remember the Sabbath. Remember, interesting way to give a commandment. You already have this wired in creation. 
Jesus says in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That too harkens back to the language of creation. This was a creation gift made for man. The Sabbath principle did not start with Moses, it started at creation. But we see a new chapter in this Sabbath ordinance with the Mosaic covenant. So we see in the fourth commandment, we look back to creation to remember in Eden. Interestingly, if you know the parallel passage in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we also have the Ten Commandments, there it says, remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So the account in Exodus says, look back to creation. The account in Deuteronomy says, look back to your redemption. So you keep the Sabbath because you know what it is to work, work, work without rest. And so you want to rest. Exodus 16, the Sabbath was the first commandment given to Israel as a nation. After they came through the Red Sea, they are given this command with the manna and the quail. Leviticus 23.3 calls it a day of sacred assembly, a day for gathering for corporate worship. So we see here very early on these twin engines of the Sabbath, worship and rest, worship and rest bound up inextricably with each other. We rest that we might be free to worship God and we give God worship by trusting him enough to rest from our labors. And then we have Exodus 31, the last command given before Moses comes down from the mountain is again the commandment of the Sabbath. So it's the first one as a nation before the Ten Commandments. It's at the end of Leviticus 31 before he comes down the mountain and he sees the golden calf, signifying once again the significance that this Sabbath principle was a sign of the covenant. Under the Mosaic dispensation, the Sabbath was not just a creation ordinance for all of humanity, but it was specifically a sign of the covenant between God and his people. This is why the prophets would, on numerous occasions, denounce Israel for doing business as usual on the Sabbath. Think of Isaiah 58, the classic text. You're doing business as usual, as if this day has no significance in your life. It was the day for rest and for worship. It was the day where God's people signified by their rest and their worship, we trust God to take care of us, and so we can rest one day in seven. Let's turn just briefly then to the New Testament. We see in the Gospels, Jesus did not break any Sabbath commands, but he did not hesitate to break the traditions and the customs of the Jews, the halakha, which is the word for walking. What, what are these oral traditions for how we walk with the Lord? Jesus didn't break any of the Old Testament commands, but he did not hesitate to break their written commands, which had grown up around it. We see several examples of this, Mark 2, 23 through 28. The disciples are picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus refuses to rebuke them. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that's the first point Jesus reinforces. And then the second is that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus has no interest in, in being a killjoy, being a sort of stickler who is, is always trying to fence the fence around the fence of the commandment. He says, look, they're hungry, they need to eat. The Sabbath was made for them, not them for the Sabbath. 
And then you look at Mark 3, 1 through 6, where Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand. And there again, they say, how can you do this healing, working on the Sabbath? And Jesus reinforces another point. We ought to do good on the Sabbath. Let's not have our man-made traditions get in the way of actually doing what is good on the Sabbath. And then a fourth example, Luke 13, 10 through 17, he heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath, reinforcing another principle that the Sabbath is a day of freedom. He said, of course this was right for me to do. I'm setting this woman free from her bondage. That's not a violation of the Sabbath. That's a fulfillment of the Sabbath. And then Luke 14, 1 through 6, he heals a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus makes the point that the Sabbath is a day for healing. So you see what Jesus is doing. He, he, he never says, well, the fourth commandment is obliterated. He never says, I want to find ways to break the commandments. But what he does is he pokes holes in all of their man-made traditions. He says, look, the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. We ought to do good on the Sabbath. It's a day of freedom. It's a day of healing. And then we come to Paul. I want you to turn to two passages in particular. First to Romans chapter 14. Because we, if we're going to understand how the fourth commandment applies, we have to come to grips with what Paul says about the Sabbath. Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul is speaking of Christian freedom. Regards to food, Old Testament ceremonial food laws, and he says also with respect to days. Well, what sort of days is he thinking of? Turn over a few books to Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He mentions three different kinds of holy days in the Jewish calendar. Festivals, which were annual holidays. New moon, which would be monthly holidays. And then the Sabbath which would be the weekly holidays. You see these same sort of descriptions elsewhere in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 45, Hosea 2 mentions feasts, new moons, Sabbaths. We see a different order in 2 Chronicles 8 and 31, Sabbaths, new moons, annual feasts. I've not been convinced by those who argue that the Sabbaths he's talking about here were something other than the weekly Sabbath. Seems very clear from the usage in the Old Testament that this was a common way to refer to annual feast, monthly feast, weekly feast. So what do we do that Paul says quite clearly, don't let anyone judge you with regard to food or drink or these special days. So just as you wouldn't judge somebody whether or not they keep these annual feasts or the 
monthly festivals with the new moon or the weekly Sabbath. Don't judge one another based on their observation of these Jewish holidays. So what are we to make then of this principle of the Sabbath? There are, if we're honest, a number of points of discontinuity and continuity. On the discontinuity side, I don't think there is any escaping the conclusion that we no longer have to keep the Jewish Sabbath. Now, say just a moment about what this means for the fourth commandment in the Lord's day. But I think from Romans 14 and Colossians 2, we'd be very hard-pressed to make a case of keeping the Jewish Sabbath. And if we wanted to, then we'd have to go back to Saturday and wonder what we're doing here on Sunday, and we'd have to look at uh, a whole manner of laws and penalties that most everyone would be uncomfortable and feel instinctively are no longer binding on the Christian. Martin Luther, always good for a bit of overstatement, said, if anywhere the day is made holy for the mere day's sake, if anywhere anyone sets up its observance on a Jewish foundation, then I order you to work on it, to ride on it, to dance on it, to feast on it, to do anything that shall remove this encroachment of Christian liberty. So there's Luther. And you say, I knew I should have been Lutheran. You say, well, but that's Luther. Well, someone no less reformed than B.B. Warfield said, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. In other words, since the Christian Sabbath has been put to rest, put to death at the crucifixion of Christ, there are clearly significant points of discontinuity between the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Lord's day. What are the points of continuity then? Well, we started in Genesis. If this is indeed a creation ordinance, then we can't just say, well, Moses, you know, it was just for his time and no longer because it has its antecedents in creation itself. The fourth commandment says, remember, and brings us back to Genesis. And then we see the number of occasions in the New Testament where there is mention of this new day. John 20, verse 1, Luke 24, verse 1, Mark 16, verse 2 all speaking of the resurrection, which you probably read in your Bibles, and it says on the first day of the week. Literally, it says, te de mia ton sabaton, on the one of the Sabbath. Sabbath can be translated Sabbath or week. On the one. The, the, the expected grammatical phrase would be the first day of the week, and that's how it's translated in the English. But it actually says in the Greek, on the one of the Sabbath, or the one of the week. The implication seems to be that the New Testament writers are consciously reckoning Sunday as the Sabbath day plus one, suggesting that this day, Sunday, is going to be the Sabbath now reborn. You know that eight is the number of creation or new creation in the Bible. We think of seven as the number of perfection. Uh, and eight is the number of recreation. How many people were in the ark? Eight. The resurrection is on what day of the week? Well, it's on the Sabbath plus one. It's on the eighth day. It's on this first day after the Sabbath. Acts 20, verse seven, speaks of on the first day of the week they gathered for worship. First Corinthians 16, again, says the first day of the week. Revelation 1.10 uses this language of 
the Lord's day. And we see in church history from the second half of the second century, it's clear that this day is being used for Sunday, the Lord's day. Justin Martyr in the second century said the church met for worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. The Didache, which was an early church constitution, described corporate worship on this Lord's day. Ignatius, by the end of the first century, said Christians no longer observe the Sabbath, but direct their lives toward the Lord's day on which our life is refreshed by him and by his death. In fact, in the first four centuries of the church, Sabbath keeping was often spiritualized to mean a life of devotion and humility to God. And as the church was was trying to understand how it was breaking away from its Jewish roots, they would sometimes even insist that to strictly observe the Sabbath on the Sabbath was an instance of Judaizing. There was a council of Laodicea in 363 that went so far as to say Christians should work on the Sabbath and honor the Lord's day instead. All that to show these points of continuity and discontinuity with the Jewish Sabbath, but now already in the Gospels and then by revelation and then certainly in the early church, this Lord's Day, this seven plus one day is now being reckoned as having picked up where the Jewish Sabbath left off. So what does this mean? It means that the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath has been abolished. It has been fulfilled in Christ. The Mosaic covenant was meant to reinforce the creation principle that we rest from our labors and we trust in God. That's the principle we find fulfilled in Christ as he shows us the true meaning of the Sabbath. That the, the, the best way to keep the Sabbath is to cease from our striving and our labors and find our rest and satisfaction in Christ. Now, having said all of that, the Bible still teaches that there are certain principles of Sabbath rest which remain and seem to have been quickly reappropriated for the Lord's day. Here's what Calvin says. There is no doubt that by the Lord Christ's coming, the ceremonial part of this commandment was abolished. That's Calvin. Christians ought, therefore, to shun completely the superstitious observance of days. That's what Calvin says. He then argues that the Lord's day was instituted as a substitute for the Sabbath, and he sees three abiding principles on the Lord's day inherited from the Jewish Sabbath. Number one, it's a day to gather for worship. Number two, it's a day to rest from our labors and give rest to others. And number three, every day we find our spiritual rest in Christ, and Calvin says that is the main way we now keep the fourth commandment. So what I want to do, having hopefully sufficiently confused and then perhaps explaining how we have points of continuity and discontinuity with this fourth commandment, is just finish briefly with those three points of application from Calvin and apply it to our lives. How might we then keep the fourth commandment. Because I said at the beginning, we, we don't just say the fourth commandment, that one doesn't really count anymore. It does, it is, it's our commandment. But the way in which we observe it has been transformed by the coming of Christ with these points of both discontinuity and continuity. So let's finish with three ways, three abiding principles, three ways we obey the, the fourth commandment. First, 
The first Sabbath principle is that it is fitting for one day in seven to be appointed a day set aside for worship. A day set aside for worship. We see from the beginning of creation there is this Sabbath principle, one day in seven, reinforced by Moses and then reappropriated in the New Testament with the Lord's day. So how are we making corporate worship a priority? Do you come every week? Do you not feel the need to celebrate the Lord's resurrection with your brothers and sisters? I would dare say even that the discipline of corporate worship is even more important than the discipline of private worship. Now you're saying, I'm here, and we're here on Sunday night, so we got this one. Well, let's think about our attitudes, our hearts as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to me and my family as well as to yours. Do, you, do we think of Sunday as climax or collapse? To some of us, it's collapse. Sun, Saturday, Saturday's the day we love. Saturday's good. You get stuff done. Saturday's fun. And, and Sunday is, well, we make it through. And then it's Monday. How do you prepare for Sunday on Saturday? Is it wrong to watch football on Sunday? I don't think you could say so from Romans 14 or Colossians 2. But is it wrong to make the focal point of a resurrection Sunday the watching of football or the playing of youth soccer? I think so. And parents have to face these difficult questions. We did a, a couple of years ago when one of our children made the baseball team with the public school. And, uh, and nowadays it doesn't even matter what, what school. All, lots of schools are having all sorts of things on Sunday. And so we said, really wants to be on the team, would like to be on the team. Um, you have some tournaments and some games on Sunday. Uh, I'm a pastor. And uh, it's really important to us that, that, we, that he be able to come to church. And he'd love to be on the team. Can he be on the team? But he's not going to be able to play on Sunday games. And thankfully, the coach, not a Christian, hardly anyone on the team was, but said, I respect that. And we'll make a way. And it's okay. He doesn't have to be there on Sunday. And so it was good. But you face the same things. And you have to make important decisions. And without laying down the sort of law that Paul would forbid us, I think it's within the parameters of Scripture to certainly exhort you to think about what sort of example we are setting for our children with regards to the Lord's Day and to worship. Is there a more important habit that you can ingrain in your children than the habit that says, we go to church on Sunday? We go to church on Sunday. Not when it fits, we go to church on Sunday. There are a few things I am more thankful for getting from my mom and dad. It was, there was ne we never woke up on Sunday. Well, what do we want to do today? This is what we do today. Well, I don't want to do it today. What does that have to do with it? No, well, hopefully you, you, you grow up and you learn to want to do it on Sunday. But it was not a point of discussion it became a virtually immovable pattern of gathering with God's people for worship on every Sunday. 
Sunday is the day the Lord has given you to attend to your soul. The good things that you've been meaning to do, you can do them on Sunday. You can get to that Christian book. You can read finally in your Bible. You can pray with your spouse. You can sing with your kids. If we were physically sick, we would go to the doctor, we would check the internet, we would call our insurance company, we would read up on the latest treatments, whatever I have to do to get well. And we spend so much time during the week in soul-shriveling activities, and God says, here is a day for your soul to breathe and to grow and to be nourished. And I know we love our kids, and we want them to excel, we want to give them all the opportunities, the best thing you can do for your kids is to teach them the importance of Lord's Day worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is the first abiding principle. It is fitting one day in seven appointed for worship. Second principle is this, that we trust in Christ enough to stop one day in seven and rest. I hope we remember that the Sabbath was meant to be a day of gladness, not of gloom. Now, we may not have always treated it as such. It's not the invention of modern people, but even in the Old Testament, God's people were grumbling about this day. Amos 8.5, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? I remember very well as a child, counting down the minutes on the clock in my room on Sunday. You cannot come out of that room for one hour. Looking at the clock, waiting till it counted down, supposed to be taking my Sunday nap. Little did I know that when you have kids, you need that nap. Children, we need that nap, or you know what happens? We die. <laughs> or you do. Okay, we need that nap. I grew up in a very with very strict Sunday rules. Um, some of them perhaps, looking back, were trying to, you know, w were they necessary? I don't know. My mom and dad sometimes disagreed on what you could do. We had a pool. My dad thought it was okay to swim on Sunday. My mom didn't. They sort of reached an equilibrium. You can, you can do something outside as long as you don't sweat. <laughs> now, is, and my dad said, well, you're in the pool, so you're good. Now, it's easy to, to think, well, were those silly rules, but I appreciate, and I can look back even now and appreciate how they were trying to guard this day, trying to set aside this day. We don't want to be overly scrupulous, but perhaps that's not the danger most of us are in. In New England, at one point, there were 39 pages of Sabbath laws in small print. John Owen, famous Puritan, said, a man can scarcely in six days read over all the duties that are proposed to be observed on the seventh. And we try to set aside those certain rules and make it a day of rest. What are you going to do for your food? Are you going to go out? Are you not going to go out? And we got to rest. And husbands, hopefully you, you realize this. And children, let's think about this too, because many of us can grow up in a household with we rest on the Sunday, we rest on the Sunday, and the one person who doesn't get any rest on Sunday is mom. Okay, mom's got to get a 12-course meal for everybody to come over. Everyone else can rest. This is a day that God has set aside to rest. It's a day meant for get to, not have to. It's a day meant for our good. This Sabbath was made for man, and the Sabbath, if it has been 
crucified in Christ, yet this Lord's day has come out of the grave and is meant to be a blessing. Ben Patterson says, what do we lose when we lose the Sabbath? We lose grace. I've said before that when I began in college and then in seminary to set aside Sunday as a day where I would not do any homework, I would not finish papers, I would not study for exams, Sunday became immediately my favorite day of the week. It was a day entirely of get to, and I was excited to go to church and go on a walk and read a book and come back to church. It became an island of get to and an ocean of have to. Of course, there's tension here. We are told not to judge each other on the observance of days. And yet, if God has hardwired us to need rest as part of the creation principle, then, then ultimately, we're hurting ourselves. We ought to see if you can get more done in six days than you can in seven. I bet you can. Is there anyone here who feels like life is underwhelming, like life is not busy, who wishes their days could be crowded with more things to do? Then give yourself a day that God has given to us to say no to the oughts in our head, permission to ignore the things you must do and say the other six days have no claim on this one. Sabbath is literally the ceasing day, the stopping day. And in an agrarian society, resting meant, I'm gonna sit down and I won't worry about the fields. And many of us with desk jobs, resting might mean ride your bike, go on a run, don't check email. Sabbath was not meant to be bondage. They had been slaves. They knew bondage. God wasn't saying, you've been slaves. Now I'll give you one day to be a slave to me. God was saying, you've been slaves. But you didn't know rest. Let me give you this gift. What good news. What good news to a people who had been a slave for four centuries when God says, I'm giving you one day in seven to take a break. Do you think they would have said, oh man, this rotten God is trying to punish us and take away all our fun? What a gift. Embrace what gives life, not just recreation, but think about that word, recreation. What, what brings newness? Not just evacuating, but recreating. Let us not approach Sunday in an effort to get away with as much as possible. That's to look at it as a Jewish feast. But let's instead think, what blessing does God mean to give to me and my family as we celebrate this Lord's Day? And if you have kids to get ready and you have naps and you have food, it, there's going to be plenty of works of necessity anyways. But let us approach, not with the spirit of what can I, can't I do, but what blessing does God mean to give me as I rest in worship? Reaching Sunday, not as the day of collapse, but the day of climax. And that means you have to think on Saturday about your Sunday. If you think Saturday's a day where I can stay up to all hours and just go, 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 and Sunday I sort of stumble on into worship. It's not keeping the Lord's day as we ought. And then finally, of the three Sabbath principles that remain, this one is actually the most explicit and the most important. Cease from your works and rest in Christ. Calvin says that's the most important way to obey the fourth commandment, and he's right. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then, 
there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That is the Sabbath rest that remains. The writer to Hebrews says, resting from your labors and trusting in Christ. Think about it. God has always offered his people rest at creation, in the wilderness, in Joshua's day, in David's day, and still today. And our chief rest is to cease from all of our flawed, sinful works and rest in Christ who is greater than Moses. I think Jesus must have had the fourth commandment in his mind when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So do we still need to obey the fourth commandment? Yes. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish one jot or tittle of the law, but to fulfill it. And yet, as Jesus fulfills it, he transforms it. And the substance gives way to shadow. The shadow of the Mosaic law was always pointing us in the direction of trust. That was the lesson to be learned with the manna. You'll get enough on the sixth day for two days, so don't go out on the seventh day or it will stink. And now that Christ is here, the substance is with us so that we trust solely in Christ for our salvation. Do we keep the fourth commandment? Yes. And what is the most important way in which we keep it? By ceasing from our sinful strivings and labors and resting only in Christ for salvation. Did you notice this strange language in Hebrews? After it says there remains a Sabbath rest, And whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Then verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Have you ever noticed that? You have to strive to rest. Now there he's talking about you have to strive to enter God's rest. You have to strive to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You have to strive to trust God enough to not rely on your own efforts but on his alone. Strive to rest. He's talking about salvation. But that same principle applies for our Lord's day. We have to fight against the disobedience of unbelief, which means we actually have to fight very hard to rest. It's almost easier, isn't it, to go, 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 go. We know how to do that. What's harder is to stop. You see why the principle all along with the Sabbath was, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Because anybody can keep going. But when God said to Israel, on that day, nothing. I don't want you to go out. Don't want you to get your manna. Don't want you to do the fields. I want you to trust. I want you to trust that I know how to take care of you. I want you to trust that if you set aside one day in seven for worship and for rest, I will more than make it up to you. For I've given you this gift to be a blessing, not a curse. Sabbath rest is about making Jesus the center of who we are. It means ceasing 
to find approval and righteousness in our deeds. It means we stop doubting God's promises and we trust that spiritual vitality is found only by resting in him. Trusting enough to stop. Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. And then verse five, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. Perhaps the Lord's day is the means of grace that you've been missing in your life, perhaps in mine, to find the rest that you know you haven't found, that you keep looking for, or perhaps that you've forgotten. Some of you, me, us, never stop. Never stop working, never stop playing, never stop cleaning, never stop planning, never stop plotting, never stop fretting, never stop fussing, never stop worrying. And though we profess all the right things, we really haven't experienced what it is to rest in Christ. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. The world does not depend on you. Even your family does not depend on you. Your salvation does not depend on you. Can you hear in this fourth commandment, after we scrape away some of the traditions and some of the guilt, can you hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this gift, this gift to worship, to gather, to remember, and to rest. We pray that you would help us to trust. Forgive us, whatever we have perhaps done with this Sunday, forgive us for the larger sin and the greater failure, which is our failure to rest and to trust in you, that you can take care of us and we can't. What good news. In Jesus we pray, amen.